Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 265. So tonight, uh, we're going to talk about wainscot, um, construction details and repairs. Okay. So uh, if, if you believe the old story that wainscot started as short flooring boards set on end around the main room of a house to prevent damage to the plaster, it's not true. Um, so whether that's the whole story or not, wainscoting has been a practical and beautiful wall finish in houses since the earliest buildings in North America. In kitchens and bathrooms, it protects the walls from food and water. In dining rooms, from furniture, in halls and stairways, from traffic. And it gives rooms a rich finishing touch. No less popular today, though, really isn't. Period wainscoting is the highlight of many restored rooms. Giving new life to old wainscoting isn't difficult, but it does require an understanding of basic woodworking repair techniques that we all need when we're doing old houses, as well as understanding how various types of wainscot were built. So let's, uh, let's get a little bit into the history, okay? So in, in, uh, in dictionary terms, a wainscot is simply a covering applied to the lower part of an interior wall. Tile, glass, sheet metal, and specialty materials. And it's, you know, it's been used to, um, but wood, but wood is the main thing. But, but wood has always been the favorite, I must say. The design and construction of wood wainscot is limited only by the skill of the carpenter or the, the woodworker. And over the past 300 years, the variety of par- pa- patterns have been tremendous. Three basic types of wainscoting, however, kind of stand out to me. So the earliest, horizontal boards. The construction of early colonial houses in the Northeast made logical to use a system of wide boards for wainscoting. At first, the use of lath and plaster was uncommon in the average house. The inside walls were finished with vertical broad pine boards, then quite plentiful. By the mid-18th century, plaster was preferred for finishing the front rooms of a house used in combination with plaster walls. The wainscot boards were run horizontally then, and at times the, the term has come across called wagon scoting, and it was almost um, reminiscent, or maybe they used on some derelict wagons, um, they took the boards off the sides, and they took them into the house, so they wouldn't, so if the wagons were no, no longer in use, they could use the boards to put along the walls of a house. So this true wainscoting normally ran the same height above the floor as the windowsill. The window stool molding was then run continuously onto the top of the wainscoting to form a cap or let's call it a chair rail, more of a today's term. The wainscoting itself was almost always in pine stock, plain down to maybe seven-eighths of an inch thickness to one inch. Three moderately wide boards may be used with identical joints to produce a wainscoting around 33 inches high. But two large boards, 14 
to 15 inches wide, possibly, with a single joint was also a common scheme. Simple joints may be half-lap or shiplap, another word for half-lap, or bead and half-lap, while more involved joints employed shadow-molded edges for a more decorative effect. So we just talked about the horizontal aspect, the earliest of the wainscot. Let's, <coughs> excuse me, let's talk about the vertical board usage. So getting into, uh, you know, probably the mid to third quarter of the 18th century. So wainscoting with the vertical boards really took off in the late 18th and early 19th century, when machine production of millwork and frame construction of houses became more commonplace. In its most rudimentary form, vertical board wainscoting is installed a lot like flooring. Grounds are nailed horizontally across the wall studs at the top and bottom limits of the wainscot and centers if necessary. Then the boards are attached along the length of the wall. Like floorboards onto joists, a cab molding is added to the top edge to finish off the board ends and serve as a chair rail. At the floor, a horizontal baseboard was common. To compensate for gaps and drafts, when the wood shrinks and swells, most wainscoting stock is edge milled in either a shiplap or tongue and groove type joint, which also allows for blind nailing, as with flooring. So another term for blind nailing is not nailing at all. It's getting the first board locked down and then subsequent second boards by the tongue slipping into the groove. So adding a decorative bead or other molded, molded pattern here helps to further disguise this seam. So again, we're avoiding very, very expensive nails to be made by a blacksmith this way. So additional moldings below the cap or on top of the baseboard make the wainscoting even more ornamental, an approach which has taken it to its limits in the glory days of the Victorian era. The variations possible with the basic plan are endless. One common scheme is to run the wainscot to five foot or more in height and swap the chair rail molding for a grooved plate rail. The variations more or less fit into prevalent styles in, in or by the period. So as you'll note by leafing uh, through pattern books or books on historic houses, or by looking at your own period house. So let's talk about wainscoting when applied to panels. So panel wainscoting is the most complicated to build, but the most sumptuous to look at. And it's been sought after for stairs, hallways, and important rooms of houses in almost every era. The construction of paneled wainscoting is very similar to that of the paneled door. In each case, large wood panels are held in a framework of styles and rails that allows the panels, which usually make up the bulk of the surface, to float. So I mean, when I say that, that is expand and contract according to their normal moisture cycle without destroying or distorting or being confined to the surrounding woodwork. Panels can be simply cut flat, a thin stop, but are usually of raised panel design. They are made by milling or hand planing the perimeter 
of an inch or so thick board to a feather edge. There are many designs of raised panels, but one of the most popular is the fielded panel. There's a central portion of the board is left flat. Raised panels not only produce attractive shadow lines in the final wainscot, but were also probably stronger and easier to make by hand utilizing a thin panel. Moreover, they could simply be reversed in the wainscot if an unraised surface is desired by the interior. Rail and style construction has taken different forms in the course of 200 years. In the colonial era panel wainscoting, and which is most all handwork, styles and <clears throat> styles and muttons which separate the panels are connected to rails with mortise and tenon joints. So these joints are secured without glue by pegging through the rails, traditionally square pegs and round holes for maximum grip. So at times I'll call these tree nails. So a wooden peg is a tree nail. So rail styles and muttons are plowed or, in other words, rabbited to receive the feather edge of the panel. With this type of construction, the decorative molding that surrounds the panel is solid molded, that is, planed on the edges of the rail stock and an integral part of it. So later, machine-made wainscoting usually did away with the mortise and tenon joint in favor of dowelled glue joints, which were a common practice in the late 1800s. Where panels are not held in a rabbit, a system of applied panels may have been used. Here, panels are retained in the frame by individual moldings in any of the several configurations. Some methods recess the panel into a dado of the frame, like a pane of glass, where it is held in place or applied or planted in the moldings. Others make use of a bowl section molding, which bridges the two surfaces of different heights. This type of molding holds the panel at times proud of the surface of the frame. So let's <clears throat> talk about installation and repair techniques of the wainscoting. So, so wainscot building is not a specialized trade or craft. Instead, it draws on many time-honored skills and methods of carpentry and joinery. In the same way, wainscoting repair involves little specialized knowledge, but rather depends on a good woodworker was a big bag of tricks. And to be a good woodworker, you need a big bag of tricks, believe me. I mean, great woodworkers uh, who I train with, uh, who I train with said a great woodworker never makes a mistake. A good woodworker makes some mistakes and knows how to hide them. So while every project is different, here are some general techniques to keep in mind when restoring wainscoting. So number one, Horizontal boards. So wainscoting made with horizontal board construction is so basic that most problems come from direct physical injury to the wood, either wear or abuse or alterations to the building. When individual boards are grossly damaged or missing altogether, replacing an entire board is the route to go. Colonial horizontal wainscoting is typically attached with a minimum of nails, such as handmade T-heads. And this usually uh, makes removing 
and reinstalling boards a simple project. Locating wide board lumber and planing it with a period edge pattern, however, might best be left to restoration companies or high-level craftsmen who have the molding cutters right at hand for this kind of woodworking. So in these cases, it pays to send a sample of the original board to best match the molding profiles. So don't forget to check locally too some sawmills and independent carpenters and cabinet makers, as I just said. So repairs can also be made without replacing entire lengths of lumber. Replacing in new sections is a well-established method for restoring sections of wainscot or cap, which have disappeared in the course of alterations, as when someone added a partition or built-in cabinet. New pieces should be fitted with a scarf joint, cut at a bias rather than square, to make the repair less obvious, then glued and nailed. So in such cases, the repair stock can be just roughed out when fitted and then finally shaped with, say, plain or some sandpaper used as a tool. So don't forget, sandpaper is a tool, too. We tend to think it was just what it is, sand, sand on paper, grit on paper, aluminum oxide, whatever the case. But when it's used, it can be used as a tool to do shaping. So don't, don't discount it as, uh, as such. So, And Dutchman, Dutchman repairs also fall into this category and are well adapted to filling holes left by plumbing or heating pipes. So repair stock should be of the same species as the original wood. That's pertinent. And if you can get the same age wood, that's even better. And, and, and the wood looks best when the grain runs in the same direction. So when cutting the Dutchman, choose a shape that is easy to reproduce, but is irregular enough to make the patch as least obvious as possible. A lopsided diamond or a trapezoid, say, rather than a circle or square. The edges of the Dutchman should also be shaped so that it will not fall through the wainscot when it is fitted in place. A bevel edge is common. The Dutchman can be glued in with white carpenters or, or yellow glue, as we know it, tight bond or Elmer's glue, and then finish planed and sanded when dry. So let's talk about repair of vertical boards. The Dutchman and scarfing are handy for repairing vertical wainscots, but they're not the only techniques that may be useful. So depending upon the construction of the wainscot, replacing or changing the location of individual boards can also be an effective way to minimize or eliminate damage. First, any retaining trim, such as a baseboard or cap molding, are pried clear and removed entirely. This should leave the boards held in place only with nails, which can either be pulled or even driven through the board with a set. Where the wainscoting is blind nailed in place, as in tongue and groove boards, the initial board may be split out with a chisel to make for quite the neat removal at best for <laughs> installing replacement boards. So when you're installing these boards, um, like repairing flooring, the same thing. The butt-jointed or shiplap-type boards usually fit back with a minimum of fuss and can be face-nailed. So just 
mark the boards as they come off with pencil so you know what goes where and everything should go back quite well. It's been there well long enough and it's dried out. So tongue and groove boards by nature do not resemble as neatly, neatly, but removing the back half of a groove on the last board will usually let it slip, <coughs> slip in where it was shiplapped. Sometimes wainscoat restoration means completing a missing length of several feet or building a whole new section. This work is basically new construction and several general tips I will continue to give you, which will be very helpful. One, for best results, install the wainscot over a wall that is plastered or drywall. Covering over a naked wall cavity increases the chances that the wainscot will be drafty or suffer from a big differential into front or back moisture levels so that that plaster or dry, drywall is going to serve as a moisture barrier for you in your installation. So in most buildings, grounds can be anchored to wall studs in three different ways. On top of the plaster or drywall surface, directly to the stud surface, which is the plaster or drywall is either cut away or installed around grounds or between studs. So similar to, to bridging, ground faces are flush with stud surfaces. Each method has a different depth in the wall and will be appropriate depending upon the clearance needed for the final wainscot. Next point. If there is a chance, gaps may show through vertical board joints when they shrink. As with a butt-jointed wainscot, paint the wall black behind the joints to mask the gaps. Next point. For wainscots that end on an open wall, such as an outside corner or doorway, Calculate the positioning of the boards carefully so that the wainscot breaks gracefully in most cases. Finishing with a whole board, if a fraction has to be used, place it on the inside corner. Next point, where durability was a factor. Period carpentry texts recommended softwoods such as pine for kitchen wainscots and hardwoods for bathrooms. Next point, as with any flooring or paneling, it is a good practice to store wainscot stock as long as possible, say a minimum of two weeks, in the room where it will be installed. This lets the lumber stabilize to the same moisture content as the room with guard, which guards against surprise shrinkage or swellings over the wainscot. So let's talk about the panels now. Countless designs of panel wainscoting exist. So it's, it's, really, it's quite hard to generalize about repairs. However, setting aside time for a quick two-part evaluation of any wainscot before breaking out the tools always improves the final result. So take your time. First, examine the wainscot closely until you understand its construction. So this you know, may mean paint stripping and gentle testing of moldings with a putty knife or thin pry bar. However, are the panels held in place? Are the moldings applied? If so, how? What holds the styles, muttons, and rails together? The answer to these questions are important for making repairs efficiently without causing more damage. Second, assess each damage area in terms of its needed repairs. In other words, decide where you're going to stop.
in the restoration process. Is every crack and split in the woodwork going to be filled so that it looks nearly new? Or are you going to mend areas that are unsightly or structurally unsound? Do you replace every area of gouge molding? Or do you smooth these spots with sandpaper so they still show wear, but won't sag on clothing or get caught uh, on a dust rag? These decisions set the scope of the work and also determine the level of finish for the, compl for the completed wainscot. So, moving on to the problems themselves. Heavy paint and varnish buildup is a common threat to panel wainscoting. Paint the cl that clogs between the floating panel and the style-on-rail framework glues it in place, and this can be a real problem. The result is that the panel cannot expand or contract in time. It succumbs to the stress and splits. The same, same thing happens when misguided restorers glue in loose panels. Paint buildup also jacks out moldings and opens joints in woodwork. If it fills spaces so that the wood is forced to move when it expands, the effect is almost like the freeze-thaw cycle on masonry products. The solution is the same in both cases. Strip and clean the buildup from the working panel areas and joints of the wainscot. In addition, future painting or varnishing should be done carefully. For instance, painting up to panel joints instead of running the brush into them. Split panels are also common. Unfortunately, they are also tricky to repair. So it pays to first decide if a fix is indeed better than just living with a split. So try to determine too why the panel split. If it parted due to impact damage or being painted in, gluing the sections together will probably be a success for yourself. So a check, a check type split due to the growth of the wood, however, may not be repaired as easily as or reliably. And you, you may want to leave it for posterity's sake because it shows exactly how the wood dries. Repairing splits is relatively simple if the pa panel can be removed from the wainscot. Gluing and clamping requires white carpenter's glue and enough clamps to close the split and hold the panel flat. And you can also use sheets of wax paper and this will prevent the panel from sticking in on the bench top. For working glue into narrow cracks, use a thin artist palette knife or you could actually use like a single edge razor blade or, or draw it from in from behind with suction from a vacuum cleaner. Filling produces a more noticeable repair, but sometimes works better on short cracks. Tapered wood slivers that match the wood panel itself can be fitted to the split glued in place, and then finish planed and hand sanded. Alternatively, Wood fillers with good adhesion properties, such as epoxy-based products, can be used, but uh, you know it's not the best thing for conservation, so just consider these for repairs. So, uh, so anyway, so they can, it's sometimes the epoxies, uh, with the right epoxy, can be removed quickly and readily from the wainscot, unlike uh, something like resorcinol glues, which create quite the mess. We want to stay away from them, so... For instance, these materials do not need the pressure or clamps to work well 
and will make a good fix so long as the panel isn't disturbed during the curing process. When panels have to be removed from the wainscot, repair becomes very complicated and should be avoided if at all possible. Mortise and tenon joints can often be released by driving the pegs through the woodwork without a punch or with a punch. So with luck, this will free the top rail and permit access to the panels. Dowd wainscoats are even trickier. It's sometimes possible to coax the rail by tapping all along its length because joints and gl the glue have shrunken over time. This will break the bond on some dowels and they will move much more easily and expose others so that they can be cut with a hacksaw blade. So this is how you can cut dowels that can be bored out and replaced once the rail is cut off. So warping is the other panel issue that uh, crops up from time to time. Good quality panels are traditionally made from quarter saw lumber. So like wainscot oak, you know, originally meant uh, quarter saw oak, specifically because it had its most stable style of cuts. But even these panels can be affected by the temperature and moisture extremes of radiators, air conditioners, or heating registers. Warped panels can always be straightened successfully or stay unwarped. Still, methods that swell one side of a panel and or shrink the other after you strip all the finish off sometimes work. So lay a wet towel on a solid, flat surface, concrete or flagstone is good. Then place the panel cup side down on the wet towel with a weight on top until the towel is dry, at least 12 hours. Lay the panel cup side down on wet grass while the sun is hot and shining. Another option. Another option. Lay the panel cup side up on a warm radiator with hot air uh, with a hot air register with a damp towel on top. Next, swell the cup side of the panel by placing it over a steam source such as a radiator vent or a hot water trickle from a sink faucet. Let's talk about another option. Shrink the crown side of the panel by by drying it slowly with a hair dryer or a heat gun, say while watching uh, your favorite show. So if a panel doesn't respond to these treatments, try curfing it in the hidden side with several parallel saw cuts. This final approach, of course, is substituting a new panel. These can usually be made with a table saw or hand plane or order from a cabinet shop or other supplier. So to help prevent future warping, panels should be finished on both sides to keep the moisture content on both sides in balance and have coatings doubled up if near dry heat sources such as radiators. So I hope everyone got something out of wainscoting, its history, um, and uh, types of repairs needed at times. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.